Friday, but it's Monday, so we're going to do your calls and my responses to them. Uh, remember, if you'd like to be featured on a show like this, the number to call is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, T-H-I-N-K, because we encourage you to think here at the Survival Podcast. The call is toll-free throughout the United States of America. International callers, you'll have to pay the international connection charger, something like that. I'm not really sure how that works, but... Uh, I think I do get dinged if you call me from Canada. So if you call me from Canada, be quick about it. All right, moving on, let's kind of knock out our housekeeping so we can get into your calls, your questions, and uh, my thoughts on them uh, with today's show. So first up, as always, we have to take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to make sure this show is here for you on a daily basis. Sponsor of the day number one today, the Lifesaver 4000 water filter bottle from Ready Made Resources. What does this do that's so different than any other filter? Well, it filters down to 0.015 microns. And by filtering down to that level, it's actually capable of filtering out things like bacteria and viruses, making just about any water safe to drink, no matter where you were in the world. Uh, its creator uh, witnessed firsthand the devastation of the Indonesian tsunami and realized how precious a, a need water was, and that was what the inspiration behind the creation of this device was. Next up today is Common Sense Prep. These guys have some really cool stuff. I recommend you check out their website. Check out their H2O hog. That's cool. And they have a lot of really cool stuff, really unique stuff that wasn't available from our other sponsors, which is why we were willing to bring them on board. Uh, unique value-added proposition, so to speak. So check out Common Sense Prep, and uh, I think you'll find their site is not just rich in a lot of really cool items, but you'll also find a great deal of information available from them as well. Moving on from there, make sure that you get in, con- in contact with us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, following me on Twitter, following me on Facebook, connecting with me on Facebook. All that good stuff is available on our website uh, in the center column. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You get some videos that are available only to members, about 20 of those. You get about $100 worth of ebooks. You get discounts from 15 different vendors. I'm working on more for you. And uh, with that, we're wrapped up the housekeeping real quick today. I wanted to blow through it for you. One more thing, though, I wanted to uh, remind you of. When you listen to the show this week on Wednesday, Thursday, and I'm hoping I'll have one for you Friday as well, it won't actually be real time. It'll be from the past. We've already done two shows. Got one more to knock out for you. Hopefully I'll be able to do that tomorrow. Um, But I'm going to be gone next week. So the reason I bring that up is if you have any tech support issues or anything like that comes up and you don't hear back from me, um, it's because I'm away. I'll do my best to handle some remote tech support, but it'll probably be Sunday when I'll get back here Sunday evening uh, next week, and, and or Sunday evening this week, and I'll be spending four or five hours catching up on all that. So I just wanted to let you guys know that. I also want you to, to tell you guys this. If you send me an email, and you don't get a response from me in a reasonable amount of time, especially something like you're requesting a discount code out of the MSB or something like that, assume that I've responded to you and your email filter has eaten it. I'm getting a lot of this lately. Try another method of, of connection. 
Get with me via Facebook. That's why I like that. Join our forum and private message me. I think there's uh, quite a few of you guys out there get like the same email from like, I've asked this for the third time, Jack. And I'm like, well, I'm answering this for the third time, dude. So if that's you, please use an alternate method of connecting to me. And Yahoo email users, um, you guys seem to have the most vicious anti-spam, and it picks up a lot of things it should, and it filters it out. So if you're on Yahoo email and that's happened, there's an even bigger chance that that's going on. So with that knocked out, let's go ahead and take the first call. Remember, if you'd like your call featured on the show, uh, we don't do these, you know, any real set uh, uh, pattern, but we'll try to do them on Fridays. 866-65-THINK, be concise, get to your point, ask your question or make your point, and maybe you'll hear yourself on the air. Let's go ahead and take our first caller. Hi, Jack. This is Mike from Phoenix again. Thanks again for your show. I think a great question would be, what is the difference between a democracy and a republic, and how does this tie into the current administration? I think you could talk for a week on that one. Anyway, I wish you the best. Thank you. Well, Mike, I think that's really a great question. Um, I don't know that I'm going to today talk about how it ties into the current administration, because I think, well, I in spite of the fact that I'm no fan of Barack Obama, I think I could say a lot of the negative things that I have to say about Barack Obama as far as abusive powers and ignoring the uh, constitutional foundation of the United States of America about a lot of our presidents, both Republican and Democrat, going back for many, many, many years. In fact, I would have to probably go back to prior to 1913 to find an example of a president who, president who didn't do it, uh, with a notable exception and probably the closest thing to uh, – to a, a constitutional-minded president that we've ever had, someone that's come to be hated by society's Herbert Hoover, um, who had his own problems with socialism and progressivism as well, but at least kind of stood his ground until he got thrown out of office and the age of uh, Roosevelt started, which was a real uh, bandwagon jump on down to the uh, progressive highway. But let's talk about your, your your basic question, because I think it, it's something we can do on, on a short show, you know, short answer show like this, that is, what is the difference between a democracy and a republic? Well, the chief difference between a democracy and a republic is that in a democracy, the majority rules, period. And what that means is that a majority has supremacy, that if 51% of the people want something, elect people that say they'll do it, those people can then go ahead and do it without anything getting in the way of that. So if the United States was a democracy, for instance, I guess this does tie to the current administration, we would have uh, the health care bill passed already. It would, be, it would be done. Even if we had a Senate and a House and we had a pure democracy, all it would take is a simple majority in the House, a simple majority in the Senate. There wouldn't be uh, the process of amendment of the bill. There wouldn't be any attempt at anything like filibustering. There would be nothing like that to, to clog the works up, so to speak, and to make it difficult to get legal things done. So the will of the majority of the people is supreme in a democracy. And that might sound good to you if you believe in being fair and if you, if you don't think about it a little bit deeper. But when you hear what a republic is, maybe you'll understand why a democracy in of itself, instead of as a component, is a bad idea. So we have a democratically elected government in this country. Everybody that runs for office uh, has to be elected into that office. And if they, are, if they don't win the election, they lose, and an opponent becomes the new senator, governor, congressman, president, what have you, okay? So that makes sense. That's why we confuse these two things together. 
But in a republic, you have checks and balances, and the chief charge of a republic is not to exercise the will of the majority, but to protect the rights of the minority. Now, this doesn't mean that we cater to, you know, this is where people get confused by this and think, well, all that sounds like socialism, where we cater to everybody's little political correct needs. No. We don't cater to anybody's politically correct needs. What we do is we don't interfere with their inalienable and sovereign rights. And there's always has to be that check that if the majority wants something, does it infringe upon a, a minority right? Not a minority desire, but a minority right. So, for instance, we could take someone as wealthy as Bill Gates or as poor as a homeless person on the street and make this point. Bill Gates has billions of dollars. Okay, billions. Uh, some people like the way he made it, some people don't like the way he made it, but he made it legally in our system. Uh, there was some antitrust stuff, but that was taken care of, and that's done. Bill Gates is a billionaire. He's worth God knows how many, $16 billion or something like that is the last estimate that I heard. Um, now, the majority of people in this country could easily be convinced that Bill Gates is not entitled to that much money, that nobody's entitled to $16 billion worth of wealth. and that would mean, therefore, there would be, in everybody's best interest, if, if we took away a lot of Mr. Gates' money and used it to fix the country. Now, we do that through income tax, but let's not cloud that right now. We're talking about direct seizure, asset seizure here. And that would be a right or a violation against Mr. Gates' right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, along with his constitutionally recognized right to own property, his private property rights. His mansion is his. He bought it. He paid for it. It's his. Now, let's we'll swing the other spectrum. The majority of people could also be convinced that it would be in everybody's best interest if that homeless guy wasn't running around the streets of downtown sleeping on, on, on the side of the road. Now, as long as he follows all local ordinances and doesn't sleep where he's not supposed to, his right to free travel throughout the United States and his right as an individual to go out and live that way, if that's what he wants, is not to be infringed upon. So while it would be easy to get a, a more than 51% of this country with the right, you know, propaganda to say that this man should be, and all like him, should be rounded up and sent to a camp and held in that camp against their will until such time as they can become productive members of society, effectively imprisoning the homeless to get them out of the way. Okay, even though we're on both spectrums here, the very wealthy and the, and the poorest, we're talking about individual minority rights, because Mr. Gates is a minority. The billionaires in our society are a minority. And the poor man on the street is a minority. And whether we like it or not, their individual rights are to be protected, because if we don't protect the rights of the minority, then eventually the rights of the majority fall. That's a republic. Where in a pure democracy, it would be possible both to seize the private property of a billionaire or to round up the, uh, the homeless on the street and force them to not be homeless against their will. That's as easy as I can make it today. You're right, it might make a great show. I can see myself going into a lot of other examples, and maybe it's a history lesson and a civics lesson that people need to have. We'll consider it, but for now, that's my answer for today. Great question. Let's move on to the next caller. Jack, Joel from Illinois. Listening to your episode about situational awareness and normalcy bias, and I'm reminded of something that you may want to discuss that you've discussed but haven't tied a name to it. It's called the OODA loop, O-O-D-A loop. Um, when you discussed your situation in Allentown, you talked about the, what you observed. You oriented that to the situation. 
you decided exactly what to do, and you acted on it. That's the OODA loop. And being able to do that faster than your opponent is what makes you successful. Um, I don't know if that's something you want to use in the show or if you want to use it as a follow-up to discuss this later, but um, that was the first thing that came to mind when you started discussing this. Thank you. Well, Joel, um, i got to tell you, that's great. Um, I think I've talked about that concept over and over and over and over again. Um, I just never knew there was such a thing as an OODA loop. Never heard the term before, and as I've researched this, as you've told me about this with this call, it's one of those things you go, how did I not know about this? It's, it's so involved today, not just in combat operations, but as a business principle. Now, it's a business principle that I've followed, and it's a life principle that I've followed, but I've never heard it referred to and put together that way with that anacronym. So, as Joel said, it's all about, you know, OODA, so that's, that stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. The concept was originally applied to the combat operations process, very often at the strategic level, both in military operations, now often applied and understood in commercial operations in the learning process. Uh, the concept was originally developed by military strategist and United States Air Force Colonel John Boyd. So I, I'm not going to go deep into this because, honestly, Joel is more familiar with this topic than I am. It's something I'm going to have to look at, kind of dissect in, in a little bit uh, greater deal, and maybe I'll come back and do a whole show for you on the OODA loop, but I'm going to have to learn with you. Now, why did I put in a, a statement or a question about something that I haven't, like, basically the foggiest idea about? Because I, I want it to, to be available to everybody else out there. This show is not so I can always sound like an expert. I'm learning along uh, the way with you guys, and here's a new concept. So now we have a new concept. So now I've talked about situational awareness. I've talked about normalcy bias. I've talked about how to utilize situational awareness and to make sure that you stay at that high level of awareness and that you trust your gut. Now what we have is kind of like, I'm a good mechanic, or we're a good carpenter, or, or what have you, and somebody just brought a new tool, and put that tool in our toolbox, and said, here's how this tool works, start using it, and use this tool to see if you can be a better mechanic, or a better gardener, or a better farmer, uh, or a better carpenter. And that's what we're going to start doing now. So, again, observe, orient, decide, and act. And it, 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 Joel's right, it's exactly what happened as I walked down the streets, uh, through Allentown, Pennsylvania. For those who didn't hear the story, uh, my wife was with me. I was wearing a fairly nice Seiko watch. My wedding band, she was wearing her wedding ring and another ring. And we were walking through Allentown. We passed a group of Hispanic males. Uh, I don't think that those four guys were going to do anything to harm us whatsoever. But the one of them, they kind of looked like maybe the guy that would be, the, if, you, if you said which one of these guys is kind of the leader of this group. And that's not a gang thing. These guys were not gang members. I'm not putting them down in any way. But when you see a group of people, there usually is one that's a dominant personality. And the gentleman with that dominant personality out of the four looked at me. His eyes met my eyes. He went straight to my watch, straight to my wing, ring, over to my wife, back to me. This all took place in, a, in probably a second to a second and a half. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders like, what are you doing here? Spun my wife around, back to the truck, drive through town, very front door of the store that we had to go into instead of walking through town, because that was our thing, we're going to walk through town and enjoy it. It was a bad area of Valentine we had never been before. And, and my wife thought I was paranoid and later learned that that area of town indeed was a very bad area of town, and it was an area that we really did not belong in, at least strolling through it the way that we were, so lackadaisically. And that's exactly what I did. I observed the interaction. I became orientated to the problem. I decided quickly that our current course of action was wrong. 
and I took an action to correct it immediately. Now, why do I bring the story back up again? Because I think it's important that we understand a lot of these great concepts, like normalcy, bias, situational awareness, the OODA loop, and all these things that we see of as being originated by people, and even some of the things that I've brought to the preparedness industry that I would be looked at and say, well, okay, he originated that. What, what most originators do is they package an existing concept in a way that it makes it easier understood and utilized. But the concept already exists. So um, I, I know some people get really upset when he stole my idea and stuff like that. Understand that these are not your ideas, right? The OODA loop wasn't really uh, Colonel John Boyd's idea. The concept of the OODA loop and how to make it usable as a tool was the idea. And the reason we need to understand that is it allows us to start doing the same thing for ourselves. As we observe situations in the world and we observe solutions to them, we're able to then, because we've watched somebody else package that into something that's easily assimilated, do the same thing and become originators of concepts ourselves. And whether they become major globally accepted concepts or not, it's not important. Whether or not they're usable to ourselves and those around us are the things that are most important. So really cool concept, Joel. Thanks for bringing that attention to my attention, and thanks for teaching me, and I assume probably a lot of other TSP or something really cool today. So folks, do some more research on the OODA loop, and I will be coming back to you with a show on it sometime in the future. Hi, Jack. This is Jason from the New Gun Blog. I just wanted to chime in on the importance of vehicle redundancy. A lot of us think, hey, we've got the truck, we've got the car, we've got vehicle redundancy, and that's all good to go. But a lot of us incorpor- have trailers that we incorporate into our bug-out plans, and, you know, you need a truck vehicle to tow those. Um, and we just had a situation where a random arsonist just burned down my father-in-law's van along with a couple thousand dollars worth of tools. And if a situation like that happened, if you were to lose that truck vehicle, you could find yourself unable to tow any additional equipment that you were planning to bug out with. And I just thought, if for those who have the extra money, in this type of market with truck prices down so low, maybe a good idea to consider whether picking up that old 1990 GMC pickup truck for $2,000 that runs great, but somebody got rid of it because of the gas, and having that extra towing vehicle might be a good strategy for the people who want to be prepared for many different situations. Anyways, have a good weekend. Bye. Well, it is a good point. It's something to definitely consider, and, and, and right now you're right. There are a there's a ton of trucks out there, half-ton, three-quarter, there's a lot of three-quarter-ton trucks out there, which are quite handy and useful to have a heavier-duty truck, and there's even uh, a few diesels out there. And I, I can't say I haven't kicked around the idea myself, um, especially once we've moved to having a second truck, uh, for a variety of reasons. There is no substitute when it comes to hauling, pulling, towing, uh, and cargo capacity for a truck. And I, I even include when I say that, um, there's no, uh, an SUV is not a substitute for a truck. A truck has so much flexibility beyond what like an excursion or an expedition or a blazer or anything like that can do. Nothing wrong with those vehicles, just that open back cargo area that can be enclosed or open. They can do things like put side. But there's so, so such simple things you can do with a truck to increase what it can carry simply by building sideboards for it, for instance, and other things like that. So it's a good idea. I don't know how immensely practical it would be during an evacuation unless you just happen to have one of your trucks break down the day before the evacuation. 
once you're on the road and going, um, unless you take the trucks, both the trucks, and leave the car, which kind of gives you that, you know, mitigates the gas uh, capability of the car, um, you lose that that additional range of a secondary, more fuel-efficient vehicle. Um, So you would probably still, in, in the evacuation, take a car, and a truck if you have two drivers. Uh, if you have three drivers in the house, now you now you got two trucks and you can consolidate loads and things like that, and that might be useful. But again, my other caution with this is we sometimes we think too much about these massive end of the world disasters, and we don't focus enough on the reality of the individual disaster um, and the personal disaster and the regional disaster. And these are the things we're more likely to face. So how likely is it that you need to bug out in such a fashion that you need to, you know, convoy? Um, not likely. That makes great reading for, you know, books like uh, Patriots or, or, or these other books like that. But in reality, when we looked at have looked at modern human conditions and what we've had to deal with, we're much more likely to deal something like deal with something like the Chilean earthquake uh, than the total complete global meltdown of all society. So a second truck is a good redundancy. I don't know how much it needs to really be a disaster redundancy. It's a good living redundancy. And one thing you're dead on about is the fact that it is cheap to pick up right now. So it's a good thing to consider, especially for people that have extra cash, because when the economy rebounds, if it rebounds anytime soon, you'll see the price of those vehicles begin to, to escalate. So I said a year and a half ago, folks, if, you, if you're financially prepared for this, everything in the world is about to go on sale right now. Well, it is on sale right now, including trucks, boats, RVs. And by, by the way, folks, I just bought a little RV, a 21-foot uh, hybrid RV. So we'll be uh, talking about that in the future as well. I'm going to pick it up today. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff out there uh, on sale that you can create redundancy with right now. But just make sure you're not in debt when you're doing this. Make sure that you don't have zero preps and you're buying a second truck. Make sure to prioritize accordingly. Otherwise, great suggestion. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Kevin from Texas. Hey, uh just have a quick question for you. Now that you've uh, started doing the Survival Podcast full-time, uh, one of the things I've really wanted to do is share the Survival Podcast in your own words, because it's hard for me to uh, relay the message sometimes to uh, my children. Uh, me and my wife are both on board, and we're working diligently. We have been for about four years now to be self-sufficient, and... Uh, we're in the midst of doing all that right now, and my children are on board, especially my youngest one. He is uh, completely fired up. But uh, I was wondering if you wouldn't consider doing a more family-friendly show, more of a, you know, maybe maybe with uh, less of the uh, less of the political side, more of the, uh, which I enjoy personally, but uh, more more along the lines of self-sufficiency and and uh, monetary. Uh, issues, things of that sort of nature, and uh, a little bit cleaner show. Just curious if uh, it wouldn't be something you'd consider. Hey, thanks again, man, because uh, you give us great ideas and uh, give us a lot of thought and things to chew on. Appreciate it. Bye. Well, Kevin, um, some people might wonder why I even played your question when my answer is going to be no, I'm not going to change the show in any way, shape, or form from its current uh, status. Well, the reason is because I occasionally get emails uh, and phone calls uh, like this. And here's my answer uh, once again on, you know, kind of the show and how the show is done and why it has the tone that it does. First of all, I tell you, you're a parent. 
You decide what your children do and do not listen to. And a lot of the subjects that you just asked about, I've actually done them, and I've done them extensively. And a lot of those subjects, I've done shows on them where there's no profanity used whatsoever. Um, now, if you want me to bring it down to the kindergarten level of understanding, I don't think that my general audience is going to want that. So I, I can't bring the, the intellectual component down any further. As far as the cleaner aspect of it, um, with the exception of the Federal Reserve, I would submit to you there's probably a show on every topic you mentioned where I don't say a word like shit even one time. Okay, But the other side of that, why do I occasionally say shit? Because that's how I talk. And that's how I feel, and this is not Radio G family-friendly uh, podcasting, at least not to some. But I'll submit to you, if you let your children watch shows like Friends and Two and a Half Men and Gary Unmarried and a lot of the other shows that are on network television, that the concepts that they'll come away with from those shows are far more, in my opinion, vulgar than anything that you're going to hear here. Right, or anything that is going to be presented here in any way, shape, or form. And if you really feel that Johnny or Tammy or, or whoever, and this is not just you, this is anybody out there that has these feelings, can't handle the occasional, occasional toss-in of the word shit or what have you, then when you have them listen to the parts of the show, it's up to you to listen to the show and say, well, he says that here and he says that there, and that's it for this episode, and I think this is a good episode, and you let them listen to it and skip those parts. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, um, sometimes we wanted to see a rated R movie that wasn't really that bad. And what my dad would do is watch it, and if it was on like HBO, that was when HBO was a new thing, and there was only one of them back then. And if it came on HBO, he would watch it, and um, he would make a mental note that there's two parts of this movie I don't want him to see, and he'd be like, "Okay, leave the room." And he'd wait, turn the volume down, and wait for it. And he'd go, okay, he'd come back in. And he'd cut those two parts out manually, right? Because there was no DVRs or editing or fast-forward buttons available at the time for a movie like that. So it was his choice to do that. And there were parts, there were time, there was a point where we got to certain age, we said, hell, you can just watch it now. So, I mean, that's, that's reality. And, and I think that part of the reason that I have to say this today is I want you guys to understand something. The show is what it is. And I don't say that to be arrogant. I don't say that to be, um, a holier than thou or anything else, but this show was built in a certain way. And just because I'm now full-time with it and I'm at home and I have more time to dedicate to it, I'll do more things. I'll bring in more information. I'll do more research. I'll provide more resources. I'll work harder uh, for the MSP. But I'm not going to change the formula that everybody that supported this show from day one till now decided they wanted to support. So there are people that hear me say shit or damn or crap or bullshit, and they get very, very upset, and they never listen again. That is their prerogative. But the people that want clear, concise, plain language when a situation warrants it are going to continue to get that. So, no, I will not change the show. I will never change the show. And if you're listening today and you're thinking about writing me one of these emails it's not that I don't appreciate your view. It's not that I don't understand your view. It's not that I'm going to be a jerk to you in response. But you're wasting your energy. The show is what it is. And when I talk about planting a garden, I'm very likely never going to use any profane words whatsoever. But if I talk about the Federal Reserve, and I become angry about the Federal Reserve, which is common if you understand it, then I'm going to call something bullshit bullshit when that's what it is. 
Because there's not a better word for a lot of these things than a lot of times when they use these words. So I hope people understand that. I hope you understand that the profanity that I've used over the last few minutes wasn't just to show you that I can do it. It was because I'm giving you concrete examples of the way things are. The show will not change. That said, I'll bet you half of the episodes out there don't have a single word of profanity in it because they're not called for. So you don't hear me get on the air and just start rattling this stuff off. But please, folks, that want me to change this format, understand how unfair it is and how unreasonable it would be to expect it after I've developed a listener base of 10,000 people who have come to expect the formula the way that it is. My loyalty is to the audience. If you as a parent do not approve of certain things that I say or certain portions of my show, it is up to you to take responsibility rather than me to take responsibility to ensure that they don't hear that. That's the kind of world I want us to live in, where parents are responsible for what goes in their children's ears and into their eyes, not the content creator and not the government either. So there you go. I hope it's not too long of an answer. I hope I didn't rip anybody off or anything or, you know, take anybody off, but that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is in regards to uh, your podcast yesterday. We spoke about the health of the uh, general population increasing during the time of the Great Depression. Uh, I'd also like to comment on that as far as um, the death rate. Um, between 1929 and 1933, 7 million people died in the country of starvation due to the tipping of the scales of the uh, system failures and the inability for people to uh, purchase and buy food for themselves. On top of that, the uh, population at the time was about 125 million, and 68 to 72 percent of the population was in an agrarian setting. Um, taking that into account into today's world, if any such things such as our food supply or there was a shortage, um, uh, millions upon millions would die. Just for an example, um, if the uh, uh, people who have uh, diabetes, their insulin was interrupted for anywhere between a period of 7 to 10 days. Uh, currently, 18 million people in the United States um, are, you know, insulin dependent. Um, within days, millions of people would perish. Um, just to kind of give you, um, you know, a response to um, the possibilities that uh, the system failure in this country could, you know, what could be the side effect of it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Isn't that a fascinating fact that uh, from 1929 to 1933, about 7 million Americans died of starvation in our country? Um, interesting, um, but not true. Didn't happen, never happened, nothing like it happened, absolutely, fundamentally, 100% false, wrong, not true, the end, over, uh, I think so. <laughs> Let me put it to you that way, I think so. Here's what I mean. Um, Let's first look to where I think the source of this belief comes from. Most myths have a basis in fact. From 1939 to 1933, uh, in the Ukraine, which is where my family was from, and uh, from what my grandmother told me, we still had family living back there while this was going on, and some of them eventually came to the United States as well. My grandparents coming to the United States prior to World War I, um, so that kind of tells you the, the, the kind of connection there that we have back uh, to the 1929 era. Well, we were going through the Great Depression here, and the Communist Revolution had completely engulfed and taken over uh, what was to eventually become the, 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 what we knew recently up until the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, 
in certain agricultural areas, there were practices done by the Soviet government that were designed to get rid of people. That's that's the conventional belief. And there's other proposed theories as to what really happened. But what you're talking about is called Golodormo. Golodormo, um, which is pronounced with, with a G, but spelled with an H, like Holodormo, um, but spelled or pronounced Golodormo, is literally translated from Ukrainian to English to mean murder by murder by starvation. And that is the only instance that I can find of an estimated million of any people dying from starvation during that period of time. Estimates range between 2 and 10 million, and a lot of people say 7 million. So I'm thinking that this gentleman got that fact twisted into our Great Depression. But it did not happen here. Let me put it in perspective for you why I absolutely believe it's totally wrong. But if I'm wrong, let me know. Show me the documentation. I'd be fascinated to find out if that happened. But here's what it would equivalent it to. First of all, you said there was 120-some-odd million people in the United States during that time. That would mean that in those four years, roughly 55 to 6% of the entire population, which would be, you know, 5 out of uh, 100 people, died of starvation. It is a massive number of people starving in a country like the United States for there to be absolutely no information that I can find online anywhere about it and have never heard about it uh, in all my studies of American history ever. Another way to think about this is from 1918 through early 1920, a period of about a year and a half, a roughly 18-month period where this thing raged, we had a thing in the United States called the Spanish flu epidemic. And about a half a million people died. And that is a huge historical uh, time and people talk about it. It's all over the place as an example of what can happen and go wrong. Even a country like the United States can experience this type of death. If from 1929 to 1933, seven million people died uh, in the United States of starvation, it would be roughly equivalent to four Spanish influenzas a year for four consecutive years in deaths. I have to believe that would show up somewhere as well. So I put this on mainly today to show you how, because there's so many things that circulate around the Internet today about somebody's doing this or Obama's doing that or the Republicans this or that, and there's this bill that's going to make us not be able to grow tomatoes and all these other things. I want you to see how something that's factual gets twisted, and sometimes I don't think this guy did this to try to pull one over on us. I don't think he believes he's wrong. If he's listening today, he's probably keystroking Google right now trying to prove himself right, wondering how he got this so wrong, because uh, he sounds like a good-natured guy that just wanted to contribute to the discussion. But this is what happens. So that didn't happen. If it did, if anybody could show me conclusive proof that 7 million people starved to death in the United States from 1929 to 1933, please let me know. I'll research it deeply and do an entire show, if not two shows on it, because the lessons we could learn from that would be immense. I just don't think it happened. Now, the rest of what he said about things like if we had uh, something to cut off supplies today, how many people would die, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. Here's the other side of that. We tend to forget that before we had this problem that people would die if the supplies were cut off, we had the problem that they died all the time anyway. In other words, if you were diabetic, insulin-dependent diabetic, in 1900, eventually you died. There was nothing anybody could do for you because they didn't know how to make insulin, extract insulin, prepare insulin, and inject it into your body. So it was a death sentence to be, uh, to be a diabetic in 1900. So many of the people that would die today if supplies would be cut off, 
when we say it's worse, it's horrific to think about these people dying, and I have diabetics in my family, and I would hate to see them go, um, and I would do everything I could to help them, but the reality we have to face is a lot of these people are dependent on medical uh, supplies today would have never made it to where they are a hundred years ago. So is it really worse? I don't know, except that we would have to deal with that. Um, I also think the other thing is that people uh, look at with diabetics, it's one of, I've been asked a lot about it, it's one of the things I hate to talk about because I hate giving people the answer of if you can't get any insulin at all and you, you know, you're an insulin-dependent diabetic, not type 2, but type 1, um, you probably are going to die. I hate giving that answer. I hate not being able to say, look, here's something you can do to fix it. But I can't find anything to, def- to fix that problem. But I will tell you, having witnessed the self-destruction of at least one person who had diabetes and basically used his disease to commit suicide and watching his body shut down over years and, and being very disturbed by what I saw, generally speaking, a diabetic that goes a day or two without, you know, 24 to 48 hours, like this gentleman said on the call, doesn't just fall over and die. They can, but not all of them will. Not all of them will. There's, there's um, a certain, it has to do with how far their disease has progressed, what type of physical shape they're in, how well they generally have taken care of themselves in the past, and things like that. It would be a tragedy beyond words. But let's make sure that we're trying to be factual. And for the times I've been factually wrong, folks, I've tried to correct them and apologize. And if you ever see me factually wrong, point it out, except for one thing. Don't point out how I'm factually wrong about global warming, because that's opinion, not fact, as far as I'm concerned. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. Jason here. I've been listening to the show for a fairly long while, maybe not since the beginning, but I had a topic suggestion that I've never heard you discuss. You often comment on relationships and community, but probably the most important one for many people is actually marriage. Um, there's not many closer, more integrated relationships than a marriage. Um, I was just wondering on your thoughts on um, addressing the challenges that... Um, a marriage going through, you know, difficulties and survival scenarios and, you know, what things might be beneficial um, to have to encourage, you know, the strengthening of those relationships during anything from Katrina-style cataclysm to whatever. Okay, just thought it might be an interesting topic to discuss. Well, interesting. Um, I'm going to say this. I'm not Dr. Phil. I don't purport to be. I occasionally throw out some marital advice. I think it was episode 69 uh, that you might want to check out where I did an episode on getting your spouse on board with emergency planning and how you could make a case to the reluctant spouse that becoming a prepper as a lifestyle is a better choice for you whether things get bad or even if they don't. Uh, so that would be probably the, the biggest look into that that I've ever done. I've, of, I've often mentioned, especially I think in my earlier shows, about how uh, marital relationships, sometimes men need to be better at listening to their, their, their uh, wives, and wives need to be also better at listening to their husbands. But as far as how do you maintain a, a strong marriage during a crisis, well, I'm giving you the best advice I can without trying to become a marriage counselor because, trust me, I have no desire to be in that business, but it is to build strong relationships when times are good. If you can't be a strong family when things are basically good, 
And, and I include things w- with good times, like dad lost a job and we're on unemployment for a few months. Um, to me, that's still a pretty good time. It's not the best time, but as long as the roof's over the head, uh, the kids can go to school and come home, there's clothes on everybody's body, and there's food on the table, I consider those to be relatively good times. And if we look back to times like the Great Depression, most people from the Great Depression era would come into this Great Recession, as they call it now, and go, what the hell are you guys talking about? You guys have it great. Your poor people have TV sets. Your poor people have two cars to a family. Your poor people get food. What, the, what is a food stamp? How do I get a food stamp card? Right? I mean, it, 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 so things are a lot better now than I think we, we lead ourselves to believe. So if we can't have a strong marriage now, then how can we expect that marriage to survive a real tragedy, a real problem? So my belief is that you need to be working on your marriage daily uh, if you're a married person. Um, I also think that one of the most important concepts in marriage is being able to communicate openly about things that you are dissatisfied with. If you want a happy marriage, it has to be okay for your partner, and it doesn't matter whether you're the man or the wife in this in this scenario, to be able to say to you, I don't like this. I don't appreciate this, or stop doing this to me, or stop saying this to me. And you have to be okay with hearing that, and you have to be willing to process that, and figure out how you can do a better job as a partner. Now, there are certain things that, you know, I won't yield with, like where if my wife said it was going to be okay for her to do illegal drugs, I would say, oh, well, no, it's not going to be. And I'm not that she's going to do that or ever has done that or anything. It's just an example. That would be a point where I'm not going to accommodate you. But if I was told, well, the fact that you cut me off because you knew what I was going to say bothers me, then I have to work on that. If, if, if my statement to her is, hey, look, what I just thought, what you've just done over the past couple of weeks has been rude behavior, then she should be willing to listen to that and evaluate it. And if you don't have that in a marriage, what happens is each side gets to the point where they won't bring these things up, and they fester like a wound, and eventually they erupt. And sometimes in a crisis, especially a family-level crisis, that's when the explosion happens. All right? Now, the other side of crisis in marriage, though, I'll have to tell you guys one day the story of my wife's surgery, uh, which is over two years ago now. Uh, she has a condition, or had a condition called trigeminal neuralgia, which has been described as the most painful condition known to man. It was a very tough nine years that we dealt with that, uh, with medication, and eventually got to the point where medication wouldn't help, and she went through 48 hours of completely irretractable pain. They had her on morphine and four other major narcotics to a level that we can't give her any more or we're going to have to put her in intensive care prior to the surgery because if we put any more, we could stop her heart. That's how bad the pain was. And this is a nerve pain in the face. And uh, during that period of crisis and during the surgery and leading up to the surgery and the fear of the surgery, which is described as almost brain surgery because they open your skull and move your brain stem out of the way to work on the nerves that go down into your face. So they don't actually cut into the brain, but they move the brain to do it. This is a, this is a major surgery. This is, you know, several days of intensive care during that, after the surgery is performed. During that period of time, I've never felt closer to my wife, and I've never felt closer to my wife after that. Uh, or, you know, I can tell you that I've been closer to my wife since that occurrence than I ever was before the occurrence. And it's actually been, while well, a horrific experience, a blessing to our lives. Because I know how important she is to me, and she knows how dedicated I am to her. 
Because during that period of time, absolutely nothing that she needed wasn't provided to her. And when we had doctors that didn't want to do what needed to be done, like when we had a doctor that was thinking about holding up a transfer to get her from a, a, a hospital where they could have done the surgery, but they're not really known for it, over to a hospital where they are the place in the United States to get it done, and it's just across town in Dallas, um, a, a quick conversation with that doctor explained to him that he was going to do the transfer or he was going to end up in need of a doctor himself, and a little bit more politically correct way of putting it, but she got transferred quickly. And a few phone calls to some other people to put pressure on the back end. And, and my dedication to getting that done was relentless. I went for about 36 hours without any sleep. And I think that crisis can actually improve a marriage if the foundation is strong in the first place. So that's the most I can say about this uh, today. But what I will tell you is that a marriage is one of the greatest assets you can have in your life. And just as you would take care of your home or your car or your investments, you better take care of your marriage. There's no such thing as a marriage on autopilot if it's going to be successful. Our high divorce rates today have been blamed on a lot of things. They've been blamed on the way society has changed. They've been blamed on the women's movement. They've been blamed on so many things. But what they come down to is people not prioritizing their marriage and making it one of the most important things in their life. If you do that, your odds of making it through um, – and growing old together in good times and bad will definitely go up. Great question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is John from Orlando. I love the show. I have a question about some perennial vines and bushes and how to get them started on a porch with very little sunlight and how long I can keep them potted like that and still be able to transplant them. I'm currently living in a condo in the city, and my only growing area is a small and shady porch. I want to start... Uh, some blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, uh, maybe some grapes or kiwis, so that I can, by the time I'm able to buy my bug-out location, I can have a head start and have some nice plants uh, that I can then transplant into the earth. It may be a year or even more until I'm able to make this purchase. So I would really appreciate your advice on this. Thank you so much for the show, and I do plan to join the Member Support Brigade soon. Thanks so much. Well, there's really two questions there. Let's start with the first one. The first one is, what kind of perennial shrubs, bushes, trees can we grow um, on a patio in a container that doesn't really get that much sunlight? And the answer, sad to say, with most of the uh, the highly productive and desirable perennial bushes and vines, um, not many. Uh, kiwi does okay in, uh, in partial shade, but... Um, it gets really big even in its first year, even though it's not very productive in its first year, and it may be difficult. Grapevines are another thing that – I guess you could do grapevines, but you, you need the sun. So the sun's the issue. Grapevines, you could kind of train that main center column of the vine and start developing your two laterals within a year and then plant them into the ground and kind of have a head start there. Um, some of the things that I have in pots right now, blueberries, um, dwarf uh, peach trees, uh, blackberry. Uh, pomegranate, uh, and fig. I have all of those doing exactly what you're asking about, uh, getting their growth advanced prior to being able to put them into the ground because unlike you, it's not because I only have a patio, it's because I'm moving soon and I don't want to put these plants into the ground and leave them behind. I want to take them with me and I've wanted to get kind of an early start on them. So I understand what you're doing there and, and that's a, a justifiable idea. The issue that you have, though, is the lack of sun, and, and there's no substitute for the sun. 
It's the most important thing, the growing things that we have, because all plants use the photosynthetic process, which requires sunlight, among other things, to, to be effective. So I don't have a good answer uh, for what you can grow on that patio. Uh, what you can do, though, is I don't know how much sun you get on the patio. If your patio is on the south side of a building where you get none, uh, it's going to be very difficult. If you get morning or afternoon sun, uh, or if you're, 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 you're you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, if you're on the north side, you can get none. But if you're on the south side, you have the sun hitting it all day, you probably wouldn't have the problem. My other question, though, is why is the shade there? Is the shade there because of the way the building's facing or because of the overhang and the porch? If so, maybe you can do some things with some reflections, some, uh, either some white painted uh, boards or even some mirrors to reflect some light and increase your lighting. But it's going to be tough with the things that you're looking to do. Now, the other side, how long can you keep them in containers before they uh, have issues when you plant them? Uh, well, think about it this way. If you go buy a three-year-old tree in a nursery, it's been in the container for three years. It might have been potted up to larger containers. The big problem you have is not usually with trees and vines. They can do this, but more more prevalent is a tree, and it's called circling and girdling root syndrome. And what happens, you think about a pot. A tree sends its roots out and hits the edge of that pot. No matter how big the pot is, eventually it gets to the edge. When it gets to that edge, the root wants to go forward laterally, and it can't. So what it does is it turns, and it begins to follow the path around the pot. It creates a circling root. Well, if you think about it, if you have a pot that, let's say, is a six-inch pot, and you have a main root circling out at six inches in, in, in diameter, and you put that into the ground in that corkscrew formation, that root's going to get thicker and thicker over time. The trunk of the tree is going to get thicker and thicker over time, and eventually the root and the trunk underground will meet. And the root can basically act, if you take a tree and put a big heavy gauge wire around that tree and tighten it and, and let it grow into the tree, it eventually st- it cuts through what's called the cambium. And the cambium is the layer between the bark and the main trunk of the tree where all the, where, you know, the, the main nutrient transport between uh, the, the ground and the, and the leaves are. And that's absolutely imperative. If you peel the bark and the cambium off a tree in a circle all the way around 360 degrees, that tree will inevitably die. That's why a wire can do the same thing. Well, the root can basically cut into the tree because of that process. Again, it's called circling and girdling root syndrome. So whenever you take a plant, and it doesn't matter if it's from a nursery or, or, or one that you've grown in a container for a while out, you really need to hose off all the dirt so that you can see the root system and get all the roots untangled, stretch all the roots out, and the ones that are heavily circling need to be pruned and kind of turned in a different direction. Dig a hole twice the diameter of the root ball and put very loose earth to encourage lateral growing of the roots, and you'll avoid that. In your situation, one of the things that I suggest you might do if this is important to you, is maybe cut a barter deal with somebody. If you know somebody that has a house, say, look, this is what I need. I need these trees taken care of for a year. Uh, and maybe you're going to go out and buy some fruit trees or some fruiting vines or whatever, stuff that's going to work well in containers, smaller trees, things like that. Put them in the biggest pots that you can reasonably acquire to do this with, plant them up, and maybe keep them at a friend's house. In return, say, look, I'm going to have you take care of half a dozen plants for me I will buy you four of your own to plant on your property. You pick what you want out of what I'm willing to buy. Uh, that may be a much better way to go if you want to get that jump start. Now, the other side of this, though, if you only have a year until you're going to be out of your condo, 
um, you may just want to wait, and it may just be more affordable to buy plants that are a little bit bigger than what you would buy and put on your on your porch. So instead of buying one-year-old nursery plants, buy two-year-old nursery plants. If you were going to be there for three years, I think you can get a real jump start by buying some small plants or even maybe starting some plants from seeds like wolfberry, also known as goji berry, is a great little shrub that you can start from seed. Uh, and it's perennial, and it goes on and on for years and years and years and years. So if you were in a situation where it's going to be three years and you had the space for it, I'd consider it. But depending on what highly shaded means, I don't know that I'm going to have a uh, another option for you. So with that, we're going to go ahead and, and we're going to we're going to wrap up the questions there. But I have kind of a treat for you today if you've hung in till the end. Um, I got an email over the weekend from a gentleman named. Greg Yows, and he has a new website called RevolutionRockandRoll.com. I'll put a link in today's show notes, but again, it is RevolutionRockandRoll.com. And uh, he started up a podcast, and his podcast is really going to be about, let's say, Revolution Rock and Roll music, and he's a songwriter. He's got quite a few songs there, and his goal is to get enough downloads to raise the money for uh, liberty-oriented political causes. I like the take that he's doing here. There's a lot of podcasts out there, I think, since the success of the Survival Podcast about preparedness and survivalism. There's a lot of podcasts out there about politics. And there's a lot of, you know, somebody did something, so I'm going to emulate it and do it too going on. And there's nothing really wrong with that. But what I get excited is when I see innovation. And I've not seen someone doing this before. So when he contacted me, I said, sure, I'll give you a little uh, plug. Well, he has a song called Snake in the Woodpile. And some of it's kind of Texas-oriented. They're talking about the Trans-Texas Corridor in the beginning. Uh, and you can hear about that when I play the song for you in just a minute, which instead of my normal music is what I'm going to sign off with today. Um, but you're also uh, going to hear some things about, you know, the religion of global warming. And uh, I like what this guy's doing. I think he's a good dude. And we're talking. He's going to help me. Some of you guys have been saying that my audio quality has been suffering lately. And, folks, I'm trying. And the little skips you are hearing is because I'm using a noise removal tool in Audacity because without it, there's a hum. So either I have a hum in my audio or I have skips, right? So he's going to try to help me figure out the equipment that I need to invest in to improve my audio quality. And we're also going to work together on uh, him developing custom music for the Survival Podcast so that Another Day, Another Dollar song uh, may no longer be our bumper music sometime in the near future. Uh, again, the gentleman that wrote that song is Bob Moss, and I dig what he's doing too, but... Um, I like my own custom music, and that was just uh, some PodSafe audio, and uh, uh, so I think it's time to make that move. So we might have a new survival podcast song uh, just for us, custom music intro and exit, and it'll be coming from Greg Yao. So check out RevolutionRockAndRoll.com today, and uh, I'm going to sign off today telling you, you can make a difference. People like Greg are examples of how a person can take their unique talent as a songwriter and try to make a difference. And whether you want to make a difference in a political fashion the way that Greg does or just in your own life, using your unique talents and skills is a way to do that. It's a way to go. So here we go. Snake in the Woodpile, ending TSP today by Greg Yowes. Well, they're building them a highway from the north down to the south gonna shove it down your throat you better open up your mouth they say they never plan to take your land but they try and run you out there's a snake in the wood pile and they're watching it go down from all the kingdoms in the land they're taking all the gold 
that the free man would command. Let's just leave it up to them. They've got an empire to expand. They're all snakes in the wood pile. There's a snake in the wood pile. There's a snake in the wood pile. There's a snake in the wood pile. You better watch out. And you think you might be voting for the next new president. Ships already programmed and your rights already spent. So if you wanna trust your life to the goddamn government, there's a snake in the wood pile. 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 your money that they need you're a snake in the wood pile there's a snake in the wood pile there's a snake in the wood pile there's a snake in the wood pile better watch out Yeah. 